everybody? It's the 4 a.m. recording. <gasps> oh I'm my thrilled. god, it is. I'm yeah. stoked. Oh god. I was looking at my photos and it said it was 1 p.m. and I was like, it is not 4 a.m. <laughs> it's definitely 4. In fact, it's 4.18 a.m. Heck yeah, it is. <sighs> I'm stoked. I've been off work for an hour. I got pizza and coffee. I had a nap a little while ago, so yeah, I'm good. You took a very long nap. Took a two-hour nap. It was awesome. I love it. I'm jealous. How was your week? Good. Good. It was really good. Thieves. Well, cool. actually it was not. Now that I'm thinking back on it. It was the worst week was of the our worst lives. Work week of my life. Oh yeah. <laughs> um We got a massive amount of snow here. And almost it was two feet of snow. Right. And overnight. Right. And um when you factor in like drifts, because there was like a lot of wind. And, uh... Plows. Plows. That bury you. We just got the truck out, like, three days ago. Yeah, and this happened on Saturday. Today is... Saturday, so it's been a week. Yeah, great. It was a lot. I've never dug so many cars, including my own, out in one night. Yeah. I've never taken so many calls for people that wanted their cars dug out in one night. Toes wouldn't come out. No, because they were so busy. Um, and they were stuck. Plows yeah. were stuck. The fire trucks were getting stuck. The ambulances were getting stuck. Like, we on emergency stuck. calls, they everybody was getting stuck. We, I mean, we had to have plows come out and get us to help us get to calls. Yeah. It was wild. Sometimes so if the call was an emergency enough, that doesn't, that sounds awful, but if it was, like, life or death kind of a thing... We would have the plows go in before the ambulance. Like, literally, they would respond, like, emergent Mm -hmm. with the ambulance so they could get to the person and be able to get back out. We had one, and we had to park so far. It was, like, in an apartment complex. We had to park on the street outside of the parking lot for it because the parking lot hadn't been plowed. And we had to run to it. And I, I ate it so hard on the ice. That's okay. You potentially saved a life. Yeah, I just don't like running on ice. I, it's fine. I don't think anybody likes running on ice. <laughs> Unless you're like a pro ice skater. Sure. With the correct utensils on your feet. Right. I did not have those. The other officer had snow boots on and he said I should get snow boots. I said, don't well, you guys those have those policy, so. Trek thingies that you can put on your shoes? Yeah, we have, like, yak tracks that snap onto your shoes, but it's hard to drive in them. Uh-huh. So, like, how do you, like, do you put them on when you get out of your car and spend all that time doing that, or? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know either. I've never used them. I kind of wish That would have been the night. I know, right? Yeah. I kind of wish that they would give first responders, like, s- chains for their cars chains uh, shovels would be cool toe toe straps toe would be straps. cool something to help repair like this happens At not very much but year. it happens so yeah when you're in colorado anything can happen. i don't know why they wouldn't yeah right. oh well anyways anywho how's your week about the same i had to rely on uh co-worker assistance to get to work because I didn't have, like, the truck was stuck, so. Yep. 
That's it. <laughs> it was just, it was really busy. It was really exhausting, but that's okay. It is over with and we are moving forward. The snow is mostly melted. Mostly. Yep. Thank God. It's like 60 out today. Ugh, yes. It was so nice. nice. Anywho. Anywho. It's our last week of Hollywood. No, I'm kind of bummed. Are you? A little bit. Okay. I think we should circle back and revisit this again. Hollywood? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Her face is like, fuck you, no. I just don't know what else <laughs> I would talk about. Oh my god, there's so much. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we're doing a tag team on this one. I'm pretty stoked about it. We are, but before we get started, I feel like we need to talk about something in particular. I have to update two things. So, first, I'm going to say that for our last episode with O.J. Simpson and Andrew Cannon, is that correct? Why does that sound weird to me? You said it. No, but I mean, like, were they the two together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said Gypsy Rose's show on Netflix. It wasn't a Netflix show. It was Hulu. My bad. I just assumed that everything's on Netflix. Anyways, the next thing is... Netflix is is kind of like a catch-all. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I, like, was looking at Netflix the other day, and I literally was like, oh my god, that show isn't on Netflix. It's on Hulu, and I feel like an idiot. You mean the act, right? Yeah, the act. That's the show I'm talking about. Thank you, because I don't think I've ever said what show it was, so I could have just gone away (laughs) scot-free, honestly. But... Also, you and I had a bit of a debate about if Andrew Cunanan was a serial killer or a spree killer. Oh, God. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to list you the definition. I'm excited about this because this means she's about to own me. (laughs) And it's 4 a.m. I don't want to get owned. I just made you pizza. (laughs) You did, and I love you so much. But, um, so, what is defined as a spree killer is, uh, according to Wikipedia... It is the element of time involved between murderous acts is the primary definition of serial mass and spree killers. So to determine a spree killer, they um, engage in killing acts for days or weeks while the methods of murder and types of victims vary. And it does say Andrew Cunanan is given as an example of spree killing. So... And then it says Charles Whitman is mentioned as the connection of mass murder and Jeffrey Dahmer as a serial killer. So it gives you examples. Then it goes further down and it says that the definition of a serial killer is someone that is the killing of three or more people over a period of more than 30 days with a significant cooling off period between the killings. Under this definition, it literally says in Wikipedia, because we all know that's true, under this definition, Andrew Cunanan would be categorized as a serial killer and not a spree killer, because his murder with William, the second to last, the one before Versace, that was on May 9th, and he didn't kill Versace until July 15th. So that's over 30 days before he killed what What's considered a significant cooling off period? I'm assuming it's is the it, 30 days. Is it? I don't know. I think you need to go to the FBI's definition. I just want to do Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Okay. But I think maybe we go to the source. Okay. Let me just go to the FBI real quick. We don't have time for this right now. We do. It's 4.30. <laughs> I want to go to bed. This is a long episode. Fine. <laughs> Guys, tune in next time. Oh, my God. We'll keep you updated <laughs> on this <laughs> epic battle. <laughs> Anyways. Um, are you good? Yeah. Do you have both Fred and George? Heck yeah, I do. What's the difference? Between Fred and George? Yeah. 
They're twins. They are twins. One was born first, one dies. Okay. What's the <laughs> difference in the Funko Pops? I have no idea. One of them's holding something, one of them's holding a different something. <laughs> okay. I'd have to look at them. I can't remember. <laughs> I just sat like this. I'm like, those two are identical. <laughs> yeah, one of them's holding, I think, a chest and the other one, whatever. We can look at them in a second. 4 a.m., man. It's hard. I'm getting my second wind. Okay, so we are talking about... Do you want to say? Do you want to say? Go for it. No, you, you can say. All you. We're talking... As Macy said, we're talking to... We're talking about the same thing. We're tag-teaming it. It is so big that we both have to talk about it. Charles Manson. And the Manson family murders. Mm-hmm. And the Manson family cult. What do they call it officially? The Tate LaBianca. Yes. Murders. Yes. There you go. So it's a big one. It's a doozy. And then I think uh, Macy also talks about the hauntings associated. Okay. A little bit, but I'm going to give you some more podcasts to listen to. Because um, the hauntings don't actually happen at... The house doesn't, I don't think, exist anymore. A new house was built there, and the guy who owns that house, like sells tours like they are fucking hotcakes so i'm gonna give you a couple ghost adventures ghost adventures was on it that's what i was thinking yeah 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 and i have a podcast i listen to where uh, the host is a good friend of this guy Mm -hmm. and she goes through and records like oh no ghost hunt she does with him so cool so we have to talk first about the birth of it all which is Charles. charles In my notes, I have him as Charles the whole time because in interviews and stuff and podcasts, they call him Charlie. I don't like that because that's what my dad's called. Oh. So I just keep okay. thinking of my dad. Sure. So if everybody calls me out and saying, He's, he, he likes to be called Charlie, well, fuck you, first of all. He's a fucking crazy psychopath that doesn't Hopefully deserve anything. He is dead. Um, but Charles is his official name, so I can call him that. So suck my dick. Uh, he was born yeah. November 12th, 1934. His... Original name was Charles Millies, or Miles. It's M-I-L-L-E-S. Hmm. Maddox. Hmm. And apparently he was originally first named No Name Maddox, because I guess they couldn't <laughs> find a name for him. They couldn't settle on a name, but eventually they decided Charles. Settling on names is hard. It is hard. But it's okay. We name our dogs. That's but, easy. Yeah. Anyways. Um... His parents were Kathleen Maddox, Bauer, Cavender, Manson. Wow. So it was like a whole bunch of hyphens, and I don't know if so that like was... Like her fourth marriage? Or... Yeah, okay. but she... definitely not her fourth marriage. I think originally her maiden name is Maddox, but as she's grown through the years, she's accumulated these other names, which is totally fine. She can live her life however she wants. But my sources just listed her by her name, I'm assuming, as she is then. Okay. Not as she was back then when Charles was born because she was only 16 when she gave birth to him. So I find it hard to believe that she has four hyphenated names. By them. By then. Right. But I could be wrong. Who knows? Especially (laughs) since one of them is Manson and we find out that she doesn't meet a Manson until later. Whatever. He's like, whatever. I'm going to take that one. (laughs) Maddox is pretty cool. Isn't it cool? Yeah. I like it. Anyways, his father was, get this, Colonel Walker Henderson Scott Sr. What a name. Colonel was literally his first name. Oh, no. Literally. Oh, so he wasn't... Oh. No. 
No. Um, parents had big aspirations. I know. Colonel, Colonel. <laughs> um, Charles was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, and the Colonel, I like calling him the Colonel, uh, worked <laughs> off and on in local mills and had a reputation as a con artist. Oh, no way. No way. It's like we see, like, the dominoes already starting to unfold. So, though, like I said, Colonel was oddly his given name, he made Kathleen believe that he was actually a colonel in the army. That would be easy to do. 100%. (laughs) Um, She would just have to never see his birth certificate or driver's license Right, and at 16, would you... You wouldn't not believe somebody, you know? Especially someone who was older than you saying they were colonel in the army. Like, what are you gonna do? Yeah. So it's like manipulation and lying was just like seated. Sure. <laughs> so again, Kathleen was only 16 at the time Charles was um, conceived. And according to my sources, she was apparently also an alcoholic and a prostitute at this time. So. 16? At 16. Bummer. I was yeah. in band. I, same. <laughs> at first, I kind of like doubted this and I was just like, oh, how could someone be in such like crazy shit at such a young age, but you'll see further on that she kind of has a criminal history. Mm. But, regardless, when Kathleen told the colonel that she was pregnant, he told her he had to go away for official army business. (laughs) And then she realized that he just never was coming back. Damn. How fucked up is that? (laughs) It's not funny. I feel so bad for her. That's so fucked to be a single mom at 16 to a dude that just lied to your fucking face. Oh, it's shitty. So when she was still pregnant with Charles in August of 1934, Kathleen then met and married William Eugene Manson. That's where the Manson comes in. Uh, William was a laborer um, at a dry cleaning business. Maybe he was like a drug dealer. Worker. Or, but it was said like laborer, so it made me think like wink, like he's uh, money laundering because he works at a dry cleaning business, you know, okay. all Breaking Bad, and then thirty. That's 30s. a lot of speculation, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> Anyways, what do you say? So then, once Charles was born, Kathleen would often go on drinking sprees with her brother Luther and leave Charles alone. Um, he would be watched by different babysitters. Uh, I'm not sure if it was just whoever she could find or if she would just, like, be like, here's my kid, good luck, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm I back know. sometime. Yeah. <laughs> but, I don't know. William and Kathleen then divorced in April of 1937 when William claimed there was a gross neglect of duty by Kathleen. True. True. So on August of 1939, Kathleen and her brother Luther were arrested for assault and robbery. Uh, They were sentenced to five to ten years in prison. This is when Charles was placed in a new home, which was that of his aunt and uncle in McMechan? McMechan. McMechan. West Virginia. (laughs) I'm going to be saying that a whole lot more, so that's great. Kathleen was paroled in... McDonald's... West Virginia? McDonald's, West Virginia. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I was about to say Georgia. I don't know. (laughs) like, Georgia! McDonald's, Georgia! Go ahead. Uh, Kathleen was paroled in 1942, and apparently Charles remembers that her first few weeks back as she returned were the happiest of his life, which he was, like, eight years old at the time, so I don't know. I don't remember a lot of things when I was eight, but... Who knows? Uh, Then they moved to Charleston, West Virginia, after 
like I said, his mom was released. And things didn't really seem to change for Kathleen because she kept reportedly drinking. And due to possibly the lack of supervision, Charles started to become truant. Um, I'm assuming from school because that's what you're truant yeah. from. And Kathleen was eventually arrested for a grand larceny but not convicted. Wow. Yeah. So that's when the family moved to Indianapolis. And this is apparently where Kathleen met a fellow alcoholic, Lewis, who apparently has no first name. But I thought that was his first name, but apparently it's not. It's his last oh. name. Mr. Um, Lewis. Mr. Lewis. And they met... I only know he's an alcoholic because they met at an AA meeting. Oh, that's... So I'm not trying to be a it. dickhole. Um, so they were trying to do better. And the two of them actually married in August of 1943. Charles, not surprisingly, started a life of crime pretty early in his life. In an interview with Diane Sawyer, as an adult, Charles admitted to setting his school on fire when he was nine years old, which is about the same time frame. (laughs) Um, So Charles was being put through the foster care system. I'm assuming he got taken away from his mom eventually because of her constant convictions and foster families were hard to come by for the area and that time so instead in 1947 by the age of 13 charles was placed in the gibald school for boys in terhute indiana i think that's how you say it terhute t-e-r-r-e-h-a-u-t-e sure i don't know i'm gonna go with it and i'm sorry if you live there if you I'm live so there sorry. email us yeah um, this school specifically was made for male delinquents, and it was ran by Catholic priests. That is our best concoction. So, obviously, it was a strict school. Uh, punishments were to be as expected from anyone who's ever heard of an old school, uh, that's ran by Catholic people. Uh, they basically would be beaten with a wooden paddle or a leather strap anytime they were, like I said, disobedient. Um, Charles ran away from school and uh, resorted to sleeping under bridges, the woods, anywhere he could find. He also resorted to petty theft in order to essentially survive. And that's so sad. At the age of 13, he had to do all this stuff. Charles eventually made it back to his mom in Indianapolis. And after having Christmas with his family, which was his aunt and uncle and his mom, back in West Virginia, his mom returned him back to the school. She's like, okay, well, now you had Christmas with us. Okay, bye. Bye. (laughs) I'm going to go back to doing my shit. Ten months later, he ran away from the school again, and he returned back to Indianapolis, and this is where Charles committed his first documented crime. This was him robbing, air quotes, a grocery store. But I'm pretty sure it was theft. Because the story goes, he was just trying to find something to eat and reportedly found a cigar box full of money that was just over $100, and he took it. He used that money to get him a room and to buy food, and sadly... Where he was staying was where Indianapolis's Skid Row was. For anybody confused about the difference between robbing and theft... Or burglary. Or burg. Uh, <laughs> theft is just taking an item. Um, robbery is taking an item from a human by force. Like, yes. in the process, usually hurting them, etc. And the key word there is human. Yes, human. Not from just... You know, a car or whatever. That's not being robbed. A store can't get robbed. Or a store. That's shoplift. hmm Burglary is trespassing into a, a building and committing any crime, not just theft, therein besides the, the trespass. So, Just a small PSA. You're welcome. 
Yeah, unless... Just don't say, someone robbed my vehicle. Do not ever say that. Don't or, say it. the store is being robbed. Be very clear. Yeah. It's not being robbed. Unless the person at the register has a gun to their face. Or say, they robbed me. No, they didn't. You were asleep. They took something from your car. Oh, yeah. That's true. Unless they physically threatened you. Yes. To take something from you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. That's why... I put robbing in air quotes because it wasn't robbery. Totally. It was just a theft. Yeah. At first I thought it was shoplifting, but then I read what the reason was and it was just theft. Yeah. So. so yeah, he was staying in Skid Row at just the age of 14, which makes me really sad. I don't want people to get mad because I keep saying that this makes me sad because it's just like looking at how his life is turning out that like maybe if he didn't have these things these happen to him. These first events that happened like young. They really impact you. Yes, they do. They totally change the course of your life. And it's just, it's crazy to see what happened to him then, and then I see how he became, and it's, like, it's a clear picture as to, like, how he became who he is, or was, I'm sorry. So, when I say I'm sad, I'm not sad for him, because he's a fucked up person, I'm just sad for the situation he had to go through. Um, Because no one should have to go through this. Charles then tried to make an honest living and got a job delivering messages for Western Union, but that wasn't enough. And then he started supplementing his income again with petty theft. In 1949, he was caught for theft and a judge sent him to Boys Town, which was a juvenile facility in Omaha, Nebraska. Four days in, himself and a fellow student named Blackie Nielsen stole a car and took a gun. The days of petty theft are now gone. They used that car and gun to commit two armed robberies while on their way to Blackie's uncle house in Peora, Illinois. Which, I'm assuming that is correct, that they are armed robberies. Yep. Anyways, I just, <laughs> sorry, I'm backtracking. Um, apparently committing crimes ran in Blackie's family because it's reported that his uncle was a professional thief, which I didn't know that was a title you could have. <laughs> professional thief. When boy, when the boys arrived, he took them under his wing and began to teach them the ways of thievery. He's like, thievery. looky here, buddies. Um, sadly, the lesson ended shortly because two weeks after arriving, Charles was arrested during a raid at a store there in town. So I don't know if they were, like, stealing from it and then they just got caught by the police or I don't know. I don't know. That's just what I found is that there was a raid. And that was when he was linked to the previous armed robberies that had been reported. Then he was sent to Indiana Boys School. While he was there, it is alleged that he, um, sorry, it was just like another strict reform school and Trigger warning, Charles was raped by other students with the encouragement of a staff member. Oof. Super oof. And to make it worse, not like being raped isn't bad, but he was also beaten. Charles then ran away from this school. You want to guess how many times he ran away from this school? Twelve times. Very close. Thirteen. Very close. Eleven. Eighteen. Oh. That's a lot. That's so much. That's a lot. That, okay... In my mind, this is me telling, me telling myself, (laughs) he tried so hard to get out of this situation because he knew it was bad, he was too young to know any better, but he was trying to get out, but fucking adults kept sticking him back in there, and who's to say that if we hadn't have been like, oh, hey buddy, I'm sorry, you're getting raped? That's fucked. You might not have been the world's most notorious cult leader slash... 
totally. influencer to murder people. 100%. Anyways, while there, um, to stop the trauma, I'm sure, Charles came up with a defense mechanism called the insane game. Have you heard of this? Nope. The- <laughs> I mean, this is something I feel like a teen would probably come up with, because, like, what else are you supposed to do if adults aren't talking? helping you. So this tactic was that when kids would start messing with him or, like, beating him or trying to rape him, and he was unable to defend himself physically, Charles would just start screaming, like, screeching, and flailing his arms around, and he just would... freaked people He out. would do that yeah. to make him look insane yeah. and for people to be like, ugh. Right. Fucking weirdo. So, I don't know. I guess next time, when in doubt, try the insane game. <laughs> It reminds me of uh, Jenna Marbles. Oh my god! When she would do the Velociraptor. I have not watched Jenna Marbles since like (laughs) high school. But that was like her first big video, right? When she was talking about how to react to somebody like hitting on you. I think that's what it was. She was just like (laughs) screeched like a pterodactyl. That's hilarious. So then, in February of 1951. Uh, Charles finally escaped from the reform school with two other boys. They were not named. The group of three started to, quote, rob, again, gas stations while driving to California in stolen vehicles. And eventually they were arrested in Utah. So, because they, um, crossed state lines in, uh, stolen vehicles, Charles and the two other boys were facing federal charges of driving a stolen vehicle across state lines and was sent to Washington, D.C.'s National Training School for Boys, which is, guess what, another fucking reform school. Of course. Yeah. And it's at this school where he undergoes a lot of, um, analyzation. I don't know if that's the right word, but they, like, kind of, like, look into him and it's where it's determined that he's considered illiterate. Probably because he hasn't had a good fucking education. Uh, But he has an above-average IQ of 109. So that's good. So yeah, he has an above-average IQ of 109, which I'm not sure how you can be considered illiterate and have an above-average IQ. Do you know? No. Okay, cool. But even then, his caseworker said that he was aggressively antisocial. Which strikes me as weird, because he keeps, like, breaking out of these places with, like, buddies, but... I guess you're better in numbers, right? Aggressively. Aggressively antisocial. So, in October of 1951, because of the diagnosis of what I just told you, a psychiatrist recommended for Charles to go to Natural Bridge Honor Camp, which is a minimum security institution. Honor Camp. Honor Camp for an institution. Okay. Um, That's fine. His aunt would visit him, and she told the administrators that she would take Charles in and find him work. She just wanted to get him out. Because I imagine, as a family member, seeing, like, at this point he's 17, so he's not quite an adult yet. But even then, like, seeing somebody that you love in a place like that would probably be really shitty. Um, So, because of that, they ended up getting Charles a parole hearing scheduled for February of 1952. So, in, like, four months. Right. However, it was all thrown away in January when he was caught raping a young boy while holding a razor to his throat. That is quite the jump Mm -hmm. from petty theft. I know. It all started with truancy, really. Good lord. But, I mean, it starts somewhere. I guess maybe now since he's, like, the older one in these, like, institutions or, like, schools or whatever, I mean, I guess in this circumstance, the institution, that he finally felt like he could take power. Yeah. 
and unfortunately took, like, I guess in, our, in my mind, this is what makes sense. I'm not a psychologist by any means, but in my psyche, if you're shown at a young age that when you have power, this is what you do with that power, then when you finally get that power, you do the same thing that you were shown or got treated. Yep. So, it, since he was raped at a previous facility by boys, I'm assuming that he thinks, in his mind, this is what somebody does at this age, and so he did it. Yep. Not saying what he did was right at all, but Fuck. you just gotta, gotta understand the mind of a psychopath sometimes, and we discovered that psychopath isn't a right term, so anti-behavioral social disorder, whatever it's called. Anti-social personality disorder. There you go. Thank you. Moving on. So then he was transferred to uh, the Federal Reformatory in Petersburg. 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 <laughs> Peter. <laughs> in Petersburg, Virginia. <laughs> I was thinking ahead to Virginia, and I like had that like. <laughs> I miss pita. Oh, pita. You want some pita bread? I was thinking of Family Guy. Oh, I was thinking of like Katniss at first, Thank like Hunger Games. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We're on two different pages here. <laughs> so, at this location is where Charles committed eight more serious offenses. Um, three of those involved, quote, homosexual acts, end quote, which I'm assuming just means more raping. Sure. Um, so, they moved him then to a maximum security reformatory at, I'm going to pronounce this so wrong and I'm so sorry, Chillicothe or Chillicothe, Ohio. Why do you guys have the weirdest pronouncing cities? Why? I don't understand. Like, here in Colorado, we have Estes Park. <laughs> and we have Rifle. Loveland. And we have Boulder. Like, come on, we're so unoriginal. Like, you guys are too original <laughs> over there. So, at this maximum security reformatory, it, Charles was expected to remain until his 21st birthday, which would have been November of 1955. However... His uh, good behavior proved to get him out early, and he moved to live with his aunt and uncle back in that place I can't pronounce in West Virginia, May of 1954. In January of 1955, Charles then married a 17-year-old hospital waitress, which I don't... What is that? A hospital <laughs> waitress? I didn't know that hospitals had... I knew that they had kitchens and, like, places people could eat, but I didn't know they, they were, like, serving you. I mean, I don't know what they did back then. They kind of have, like... A cafeteria, but I feel like they don't serve. That's I don't know. What I was thinking. I don't know that much. It's probably different back in the. 50s. I have not been in enough uh, hospitals to speak on that. That's true. Accurately, true. Same. So her name was Rosalie Jean Willis, and they moved to California in a car that he stole from Ohio. Sure. Um, while Rosalie was pregnant with their child. <sighs> Good. Yeah, so because he was found to have taken a stolen vehicle across state lines again, Charles was arrested again. Motor vehicle theft. Um, <laughs> so this time after a psych evaluation, he was given five years probation. So good for him. This is like his... God damn. Are you serious? No, I'm being a facetious little fuck. Like, he is... This isn't the... No, that's all he got? That's all he got. That's what I'm saying. Are you serious? Yeah, no, that's no, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's all he Jesus got. Jesus Christ. Sorry. Yeah, so that's, that's all he got. Ridiculous. For, like, uh, clearly a crime that he's committed more than once and is yes. going to keep committing. Yes. Uh, this is where we start to get a, a, little, a little angry. But uh, his failure to appear to a hearing in Los Angeles led to his arrest in Iowa in March of 1956. 
when you think Charles really gets around, just wait. The charge for that arrest was taking a stolen car across lanes, and it was the the charge was filed in Florida. <laughs> Oh, my God. So it was filed in Florida. He took a car from Ohio. Oh I don't know how he got from Ohio to Florida to California, but somehow his hearing in Los Angeles, and he got arrested in Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> this guy. Oh, my God. No wonder he did a failure to appear. He's like, where do I He's go? He's like, which court do I go to? I'm just not going to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Anyways. So, his probation was taken away, thank God. No way. And he was then sentenced to three years in prison at a place called Terminal Island that is in San Pedro, California. Um, So then, during the first year that Charles was incarcerated, Rosalie had that son that she was pregnant with, and they named him. Do you want to guess what they named him? You probably know. Go ahead. Charles Manson Jr. (laughs) Okay. Poor Um, guy. Yeah, unfortunately, he killed himself in the 90s. Oh, well. So, super big bummer. Can't say I'm that surprised, though. Yeah, it's, I feel super bad for the dude. He had a rough. Yeah. He just was put in a wrong basket Eh, for, yeah. anyways. Rosalie and Charles' mom would actually visit him in prison. Apparently, Kathleen and Charles' mom moved in with Rosalie. Maybe to help with, like, taking care of the kid or whatever. Maybe Kathleen needed somewhere to bum. I don't know. Sure. Eventually, one day, Rosalie didn't show up, and Kathleen told Charles that Rosalie left and took Junior with her to live with her new boyfriend lover person. Rosalie ended up eventually divorcing Charles. Okay. So, like an idiot, two weeks before his scheduled parole hearing, Charles tried to escape by stealing yet another car. Uh... (laughs) Then in September of 1958, he Genius. got... Do you want to guess what he got for that? Uh, more probation, probably. Five years parole. <laughs> he really has luck with this five-year stuff. So then November of that same year, 1958, he was apparently pimping a 16-year-old and I'm getting... I'm annoyed. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Why? Fuck parole! Oh, I know. Who cares? Know. Like, it this guy nothing. obviously keeps fucking up. Doesn't care if he gets parole violations or whatever, because nope. it doesn't matter, because he keeps getting fucking parole. Yep. Continue. Continuing. Yeah, so he's pimping out a 16-year-old and getting his income from another girl who had wealthy money. Wealthy money? I think I meant, I think I meant Wealth to type. or money. <laughs> I know. No, no, no. I think I meant to say wealthy parents. Oh. <laughs> and I just kept thinking about money. I'm like, hey, she well. doesn't have the cheap money. She has the wealthy money. <laughs> she don't got those $1 bills. She's got those hundos. She got those hundos. <laughs> um, whatever. So I found in one source, and I can't remember which one it was. I feel like an asshole because I go like back and forth with sources depending on where my timeline is. I found in one source that Charles was actually imprisoned for pimping out Rosalie, but I'm not sure if this was before or during their marriage. And at the time, I thought it was the reason why she divorced him, but it doesn't really matter. He was pimping out a 16-year-old girl who just so happens to be the same age as what Rosalie would have been. I'm moving on now. So in September of 1959, Charles pled guilty to a charge of attempting to cash a forged U.S. Treasury check. Of all the things... (laughs) This is He's like, he this is the one that won't get me that much time. So yeah. Just... Um, but guess what? The charges were dropped. <laughs> he pled. He pled guilty and, and the charges dropped. were dropped. 
whatever. So then in 1959, Charles got a 10-year suspended sentence and probation after a young woman named Liana told the court in tears that her and Charles were, quote, deeply in love and she would marry Charles if he were free, end quote. That wasn't really much of a quote. I might have been quoting the article. I'm not sure. So anyways, Charles married Liana Ray, goes by Candy Stevens, and... No longer was she required to testify against him because they were married. Hmm. So, before I go into further as to why that's important to know, based on my sources, Liana's form of employment was prostitution. But I think Charles had a little uh, side gig of prostituting women because he I mean... took he took Liana and another woman to New Mexico to prostitute. Which resulted in him being held and questioned for a violation of the Mann Act. Do you know what the Mann Act is? Tell me. The Mann Act is a federal law that was passed. It is also known as the White Slave Traffic Act, which I hate that name. So we're going to keep calling it the Mann Act because anybody of any color can be trafficked in any way. Anyways, moving on. It was passed on June 25th of 1910 and it is named after Illinois' congressman, James Robert Mann. Essentially... What it does is it makes it a felony to engage in interstate or foreign commerce transport of any woman or girl for the purpose of prostitution, debauchery, or for any other immoral purpose. Originally, this was made to address prostitution, immorality, and human trafficking, especially when it came to trafficking that the purpose of that was prostitution. So, unfortunately or fortunately... The broad meaning of immoral can make this act used to criminalize even consensual sex between adults. The hell? <laughs> yeah. So I guess, depending on where you are, just be careful when you're fucking somebody that yeah. you're supposed to be fucking. <laughs> so okay. it it has, like, a bunch of amendments <laughs> and stuff like that, but that was just, like, the basic information right. and then a fun fact of what I thought the law classifies as immoral. So in June in Laredo, Texas, after one of the women are arrested for prostitution, I'm assuming it wasn't his wife, um, Charles was arrested right afterwards. When Charles returned to Los Angeles, he was ordered to serve his 10-year sentence for violating probation and then spent a year trying to appeal the fact that his probation got taken away, but that went nowhere. No fucking shit, bro. You can't just keep getting probation eventually. Then in July of 1961, he was transferred from the L.A. County Jail to the U.S. Penitentiary at McNeil Island in Washington. So now, Charles is in Washington, and his mom moves to Washington. Hmm. She, um, I guess, really loves her son now. Sure. Now she loves her son. Makes sense. Anyways, fun fact, the charge that Charles got for the Mann Act... Do you want to know what happened to it? Mm. It got dropped. Dropped. It got so dropped so fast. And then while incarcerated, his annual reviews showed that Charles had a, quote, tremendous drive to call attention to himself, end quote, which was something that was noted in that, like, while he was incarcerated at that place, it was noted twice, in 1961 and in 1964, which I think is very interesting, especially since we had talked about his previous reform school, or the psych ward. I don't remember which one that he was at when they said that he was aggressively antisocial. Oh, was that... No, was that the one, the camp? I don't remember. He's been to somebody. I think it was the minimum security. Okay. Okay. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Sure, 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 sure. But it's interesting to see how he's, like, completely, like, turned around. Oh, well. L-O-L. 
So, Liana, his second wife, eventually got pregnant, and they had his second son. Do you want to name, do you want to guess? Charles III. I mean, basically, essentially, <laughs> he is Charles III. Charlie. Um, his name is Charles Luther Manson. Hmm. Uh, Luther, I believe, comes from his mom's brother, who was named Luther. So, that's cool. Also, it is noted in some sources that this is an alleged child. Uh, <laughs> yeah. With the same name. Yeah. Okay. Anyways. Sure. So, uh, even Liana divorced Charles in 1963. It's probably because she got tired of uh, being a prostitute for a man that's a piece of shit. That's fair. Yeah. But, like I said, her job was listed as being a prostitute, but based off of what we know of Charles, it doesn't strike me as odd if he literally if she was listed as a prostitute merely because he prostituted her sure. like i yeah, don't yeah, yeah. i don't fucking care if you if you are a sex worker live your fucking life but if somebody is there dictating for you to do that and or what you can or cannot do or any form of like elicitation and that one person is the only person who has ever done that yeah and you're not willingly right right that's where I have an issue with sex work, is when it turns into a gain for somebody else, and then it turns into more work for the other person. And more, it's most of the time... trafficking at that point. Literally. Yeah. Most of the time, it, trafficking, the person that is doing the sex work isn't seeing half of the profits. Yeah. They aren't seeing anything. They're not seeing any benefits. Whatever. Don't get me started. So then, June of 1966, Charles was sent back to Terminal Island because he was getting an early release. So he went from a maximum security back to a, I guess, regular security. Sure. I don't, I don't know what that prison was. Then in March of 20... March of 21. <laughs> <laughs> now. March 21st, uh, 1967, Charles was released from prison and moved to San Francisco. According to the Smithsonian, Charles was so institutionalized by authorities that when he when he was getting released, he asked the warden if he could stay. <laughs> He's like, this is fine. I'm getting fed. Right. I have a bed. Whatever. So, maybe that's why Manson started a cult, because he liked the structure. Sure. Which makes sense. A lot of people do. Yeah, because at this yeah, point... it just works. He's 32 years old, and he has spent over half his life in... Prisons, reform schools, psych facilities. Mm -hmm. Like, he's not really lived a normal life. And anytime he has, he just keeps getting arrested. Yeah. Um, so while living in San Francisco, Charles met with a prison acquaintance where he moved into an apartment with at Berkeley Island. Or, no, I'm sorry, not Island. Berkeley instead. Berkeley hey. is where Charles now meets a Mary Brunner. Mary is 23 years old. She's a graduate of University of Wisconsin in Madison so she's a smart girl. Sure. She's working as a library assistant at the University of California there in Berkeley. I guess eventually Charles moved in with her. Can I, I, th I guess they had a relationship. It wasn't very clear on that. But regardless, he also was able to convince her to let other women move in with them. Mm. Um, so much that they had 18 other women living there. <sighs> and they all just shared the place. Yeah. So, then the in the summer of 1967, which I don't know if you know, but that summer is coined as the summer of love. Oh, um, nice. Charles was rising in fame as a self-proclaimed guru and hippie. 
Makes sense. Yeah. This is where he started to steal ideas from other churches, which we'll discuss in a second, but he basically was kind of like copying and pasting what other people have been doing that are succeeding. (laughs) And then this is also around the time where he starts to get his first group of followers. And they're called, as we all know, the Manson family. Uh, It had about 100 followers, according to later arrest records, there were 60 total. But who knows how many would fess up to saying that they were part of that. So I'm going to go with about 100. They all shared in Charles's passion in the use of drugs, such as LSD and those special shrooms, as well as what some might call an unconventional lifestyle, though with how many people are on cults, maybe it's not so unconventional. Sure. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Because Charles was such a stud, I'm just kidding, most of his followers were women, and they were known as the Manson Girls. Most notably, his female followers were younger women, which, in my opinion, are typically more easily influenced by a manipulative older man. Apparently, Charles would use these younger girls to then lure men to be in the cult, and, um... This is just another fucked up way for him to manipulate innocent girls, and it reminds me about how he would handle with prostitutes. Lovely. Yeah, because I'm sure that he was like, oh, you can have sex with her if you be part of our group. And how much you want to bet they were like, oh, sick, I get to have sex with an older sick. man. They don't know any better. It's so fucked. Anyways, it is also thought that Manson was able to lure so many people because of lax um, social codes at the time, which basically means that runaway hippies mingled freely with Hollywood elite. Like, there was no, like, dividing. Like, people just kind of hung out together. Especially, like, during the Summer of Love. Charles mainly focused the cults on how he was Jesus, and he also talked about how he had prophecies of a race war. Totally. I love it. Homeboy I don't love was, it. I'm just kidding. like, so racist. Remarkably it is repulsive how yeah. racist he is. Yeah. I hate it. Um, and I did not, like, pick up on that prior to doing this research. Me either. But here we are learning and educating. So, <laughs> specifically, his prophecies of a race war were that black people would start a rebellion in America and commit crimes against white people. They ba- He basically thought they were going to take over. Yeah. There's going to be a gigantic race war, and he wanted to, like, hunker down. Yeah. I'll get into that in a second. <sighs> he also believed that he was the harbinger of doom for the planet's future. Oh, well. And you'd think he'd want to talk, like, call himself something better. Like, the harbinger of hope. Or the harbinger <laughs> of peace. Like, I wouldn't want to be in this hippie group with somebody who's calling him- no, himself- Yeah. Like, What? <laughs> What? That's crazy to me. Anyways, Charles would also often use alias of Charles Willis Manson, because when you say it slowly... Willis? Willis. I think it's a maiden name of somebody. I remember reading it. Anyways. Charles when you is Manson. Okay, I'm trying to figure this out now. Yeah, so when you, he often would say it slowly, such as I'm about to say. Are you ready? When you say it slowly, it goes... Charles Will is man's son. Oh. Yeah. So he's implying that his will is that of the son of man. Jesus. Just let that sink in. Right. Uh, right, Jesus? Yeah. Okay, sure. Okay, okay. Charles also claimed that his followers were reincarnated original Christians. 
Uh, there are also claims that Charles stated the first century Romans were reincarnated as the 1960s era American establishment, which I'm assuming is the reference to his cult. Yep. So everybody is just reincarnated oh into his God. cult. <laughs> E-boy. Yeah, Charles uh, was mainly influenced for the cult based off of the drugs they were using sure. and various forms of art. <laughs> the most well-known was the Beatles song... Helter Skelter, which came out in 1968. Charles interpreted the song as essentially the outline for the race war. This song tells you exactly what's going to happen between the blacks and the whites, don't you know? It was about a ride in London. Yes, it was. Um, <laughs> he easy, easily manipulated the lyrics to match his desires and made it essentially a Bible or rule book for his followers to abide by and do certain acts slash crimes, which he did that for the whole album. Paul McCartney reportedly said that the playground slide references in the song is actually a metaphor to the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. That makes sense. Not a race war. <laughs> so I googled the lyrics. I have not heard the song. Okay. And I did not want to listen to the song until I talked to you about these lyrics, because I'm very interested to see what your opinion is. I just wanted to read them as they are for words, because I feel like music gives a different tone. Do you want to listen tone. to it after? Yes, we can okay. listen to it after. Um, but I want to see whose side of the fence we fall on. So this is verse two that goes into the second chorus. So, okay. will you, won't you want me to make you? I'm coming down fast, but don't let me break you. Tell me, tell me, tell me the answer. You may be a lover, but you ain't no dancer. Look out, helter skelter, helter skelter, helter skelter. Look out, because here she comes. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and say that I don't think that sounds like anything about a ride or anything really about the Roman Empire? I think the first verse does it a little bit better, but I liked this one a little bit more. Because, won't you want me to make you? Won't you want me to make you what? Like, I think that might be Charles's way of interpreting, won't you want me to make you powerful when you want me to make you yeah. great like he can literally spin this so much yeah. i'm coming down fast but don't let me break you it's about a slide that's true Obviously. that is about a slide clearly <laughs> <laughs> whatever we're gonna listen to the song afterwards and i'm sure i'll change my opinion okay so let's talk a little bit more about this race war once the war started, apparently the family, the Manson family, would be forced to go underground in caves, perhaps the secret Los Angeles ones we already talked about, or I even found that they were going to escape to a secret underground city called the Bottomless Pit. <laughs> um, and thousands would die in the war, not millions, which were in the, or billions that were in the world, just thousands. Okay. And after the war was over, the family would come out and rule the thousands new world. Thousands of people die every day. Literally, and we're still populated. Yeah. Somehow. Oh, well. Uh, anyways. Yeah, they would come out and they would rule the new world. So, like I said, not just the Helter Skelter song, but the whole album called The White Album, according to Charles, foretold the whole story of the end of the world in, like, some secret code that only he could interpret. Sure. Um, he even claimed that the album was made just for them so they could prepare for the impending disaster because the Beatles wanted to speak directly to Charles. When talking to the family, he would reference the Beatles as, quote, the soul and, quote, part of the whole and the infinite. I don't even know what the fuck that means. <laughs> part of the whole and the infinite? Whatever. 
Anyways, Charles also took interest and held a strong belief in the notion of Armageddon. That is in the book of Revelations from the New Testament. For those who aren't Christian or familiar with this part of the Bible, such as myself, Armageddon is referred to as the apparent location of where armies will battle for the end of times. This location is interpreted as being symbolic or literal. (laughs) It could be anything. It could be anything. (laughs) You know, just like how Helter Skelter, the song could be about anything. Uh, Uh, Let's just make shit up. Yeah, seriously. We could be making shit up right now. Nobody would ever know. Nobody they trust would ever us. know. In fact, if we become popular enough, they'll probably take it as fact, whatever we say, mm-hmm. and uh, determine, you know, the rest of their their lives off of it. It's crazy. So, We're changing lives. It's weird. We're changing lives all over. <laughs> so, like I said, Charles also familiarized himself with other churches, also known as other cults. And their teachings, such as the ever-popular Scientology and the Church of the Final Judgment. So, if you're listening to this podcast... That's a clue! Yeah. <laughs> I would hope that you know that um, Scientology is not a church. Hi, it's not legit. It's, it's a cult. <laughs> it's um, for sure a cult. Yeah, or a mental wellness place or whatever it ten out tries ten to... recommend Leah Remini's... A show on Hulu about yeah. Scientology. It is revealing. Right. So, just for the lowdown before you guys go check out that show, because I want you to keep listening. Scientology is a religion slash cult slash business <laughs> that has its beliefs and practices based on science fiction authors' imagination. Yeah, that's like... Elron all... Hubbard just wrote whatever the fuck he wanted. Yep. He came up with some ideas called Dianetics, which is presented to followers as a form of therapy. I think my mom had that book. Oh, no. No, no, no. She thought it was weird. Oh, she good. told me she thought it was weird. Okay. Recently. Oh, good. Because we were talking about this show, and she's like, yeah, everybody had that book. I had that book. Oh, but she yeah. said it was weird. So. Yeah, they're trying We're to like manu- manipulate people with mental health problems to say, oh, if you read this, 100%. And it was just like, well, you gotta get to the next level, so you gotta buy this package. Yep. And then you gotta get to the next level, and then you gotta buy this package. And then they would make MGM. children Not sell MGM. their souls MLM. for like billions of years. Yes. Literally. It's so fucked. The billions of years that they won't even be alive. Anyways, so that's the lowdown of Scientology. So then the Church of the Final Judgment is also known as the Process Church. It is a religious group that was established in the United Kingdom in 1966. Founders were a British couple named Mary Ann McLean and Robert de Grimston. Most scholars classify it as a form of Satanism, which some people know that not all forms of Satanism is, quote, bad or whatever you want to interpret as bad, but... I'm just going to stop there because we could just keep going on about these side hustles. And... I, I, yeah, we have some listeners that would take charge with that, I think. But you think? Take charge of what? Different thoughts about Satanism. Oh, yeah. I have different thoughts about Satanism myself. I do, too. So. Let's go on. Charles had a similar... He had similar mindsets from what I just listened and... Or listened. Listed. And influence from various cult quasi-religious groups that were also emerging around that time. Are we surprised? I guess the fucking 60s are the time to be a part of a cult. 
Before the end of the summer 1967, Charles, with a small group of family members, less than 10 of them, piled into an old school bus and then went on a road trip to Washington through California to Mexico, then back to America, southwest, and then back to California. Um, then in 1967, Mary Brunner, who we talked about before, became pregnant with Charles's child. Sick. I know. His third one. And on April 15th of 1968, he gave birth to his son. Do you want to she? know? She gave birth to his son? Yeah, did I say he? I wrote she, so I don't know why I said he. I'm sorry. She gave birth to his, their son, technically. Um, do you want to guess what he's named? Charles the Third. No. Fourth. I don't know. Valentine Michael. Weird. <laughs> like, what? Weird. Not even Manson. And Good for even... him, though. that I bet that worked out in the end. Oh, totally. She gave birth in a condemned house in Topanga Canyon, California, where the Manson girls assisted with the birth. Great. Yep. Of all the people. I know. I would not want them. A bunch of young teenagers that were runaways at the time. I don't know. So this will be the end of the three children that Charles publicly had, but it is speculated that he had many, many more. Are we surprised? No. And I'm sorry if you are related to him. Anyways. So when you look up Charles in Wikipedia, his occupation is listed as singer-songwriter, which I thought was weird. Like, very, very weird. I looked at that and I was like, fuck Wikipedia, man. I, you can't trust this shit. But it's not wrong. It's not fucking wrong. It's wild. And I told you about how I went in this black hole of a deep dive of research and you're like, do we have to talk about this? Yes. <laughs> yes, we do. Because... <laughs> Fucking Charles Manson is a singer slash songwriter. I have a fun fact to tell you as soon as you get into, like, the deep parts of this, because... So, I have a family member who played and may have written some of the songs for the Beach Boys. Why are they not on this podcast with us? I told you I got into a deep dive about Beach Boys. I know. <laughs> I'm offended. I'm just fucking offended. He's pretty offended. badass, but... Whatever. A little weird. Okay. Whatever. So, anyways, Charles <laughs> Charles Manson did indeed write a song or two and record a song or two. And he did this with the famous Dennis Wilson, who was the drummer of the Beach Boys. Dennis is also a co-founder of the band, as well as a singer-songwriter. So, legend has it that on April 6th, 1968... Dennis ran across two innocent-looking females named Patricia Krenwinkel and Ella Jo Bailey. There they were hitchhiking, and Dennis gave them a ride to where they needed to go. So then a few days later, on April 11th, he saw them again at the same place and decided just to take him back to his home. And, um... Wise... I know. He must have liked them or something. They really hit it off. And according to an event remembered by Dennis, he was talking to Patricia and Ella about the Beach Boys' interactions and involvement with a well-known guru simply called the Mara... Oh, I was totally fucked up. I meant to look this up. <laughs> Maharishi? Maharishi. I'm going to go with that. He is an Indian guru known for creating the transcendental meditation technique as well as being part of a worldwide organizations for medita- meditation and all that shit. Um, the girls were interested in this, apparently, and they said that they had a guru of their own. Named- His name was Charles. His name was Charlie. <laughs> um, and he had just got out of a 12-year prison sentence. Oh, well. Yeah. Um, apparently, after this, 
Dennis either left the ladies at that location or I don't fucking know. But regardless, Dennis went to a recording session and when he came home, he found Charles just standing in his driveway, like waiting for him to come. It's not weird. Yeah. And so then when he went inside his house, Dennis found about a dozen people just hanging out. And after that, Dennis had allowed several of the family members to stay with him as well as Charles. So according to Charles, he had actually met Dennis prior to the situation at a friend's house in San Francisco where he was buying the most awful of all drugs, weed. Oh. I'm just kidding. I'm being facetious. Heroin? No, he was just buying weed. Oh. He was literally just buying weed. Okay. Um... (laughs) And that's apparently where Charles says that he met Dennis, was at this house. And according to Charles, again, Donna, Donna's, uh, Dennis had offered for Charles to stay at his home in Los Angeles anytime, you know? Apparently, at first, Dennis was interested in Charles and the people that worshipped him so much that he referred to Charles as the wizard. And according to a Rave Magazine article from the, t- oh, sorry, that was according to a Rave Magazine article from the time. They all became friends, and over the next few months, the family was housed by Dennis, and it costed him, in the long run, about $100,000. Wow. Do you want to guess how much that is now? $200,000. No, not even close. Three. No. Four. No. Lower? More. Seven. Seven hundred... <laughs> wait, no. $716,659. Wow. Dollars and 40 cents. Good lord. But according to... Wikipedia, when I was getting this information, I used a calculator on Google to tell me how much the inflation would have been or the change of yeah, cost or whatever. Right. And according to the wiki article, it said it was 740000 but I I trust my calculator a little bit more than wiki. Anyways. Probably because you call it wiki. Okay. So, anyways, fun fact, these expenses were mainly spent on transportation, clothing, and food for the guests slash roomies, but most interestingly, it also went to refilling penicillin shots because of all the gonorrhea that somehow kept going No way! That's so weird. (laughs) It's like they're all sleeping together. It's like there's just orgies constantly or something. Jesus Christ. Yeah, anyways. Okay. So, the Manson family lived there for six months, and um, it's also important to note that the women involved with the cult were treated like servants for both Charles and, apparently, Dennis, mm-hmm. which is probably why he dealt with all the bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, later, in 1968, Dennis told the record Mirror, quote, When I met Charles, I found he had great musical ideas. We're writing together now. He's dumb in some ways, but I appreciate... <laughs> Sorry. I accept his approach, and I have learned from him. End quote. He's dumb in some ways. Like, he's pretty dumb, but, like, I guess he has some good ideas here and there. It's whatever. Yeah. So, fun fact about Charles is that he learned... He's no Beatle, but... He's no Beatle, but he compares himself to the Beatles a lot. (laughs) And I'll tell you about that in a second. But, fun fact, Charles learned to play the guitar while in prison by a fellow inmate named Alvin Carpus. So, Charles was, like, a triple threat. He was, like, singer, (laughs) songwriter, guitar player... Guru. Like, who knew, like, six chords, maybe. (laughs) Um, Everybody he jammed with figured that out real quick. Right, 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 right. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Also, another fun fact, while at prison at McNeil Island Prison, Charles told a few inmates that he was going to surpass the Beatles in fame. Wow. But was he wrong? 
kind of. It's a little different. Apples and oranges. And you're that's you're right. You're right. You're right. I'm not saying he surpassed them in like fame of musical abilities, but he's definitely famous. Do you think people in like England know about Charles Manson? I don't know. That's the real question. Do we have any listeners from that area that would be able to answer that for us? Is he as notorious for you guys as, like, say, Jack the Ripper is for us? Good. 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 Yeah. So, let us know. Please email us at something we'll say later on. So, Dennis introduced... (laughs) um, You have to listen to the whole episode. (laughs) (laughs) I just... I want to get through this because I know I'm using a lot of our time. I'm so sorry. She predicted this. She's not sorry. I I warned you. She said, oh my god, I've spent so much time about this drummer. So much time about the drummer. (laughs) So, Dennis introduced Charles to some people in the music business, which includes The Birds producer, Terry Melcher. Fun fact, Terry was also the son of actress Doris Day. Apparently, Dennis would go to his brother, Brian's, a recording studio where they would often record for the Beach Boys, and he would take Charles with him. Anything that Charles recorded, unfortunately, or fortunately, was not put out to the public. It was apparently just for Dennis and Terry. But the Beach Boys did record a song that Charles had supposedly written, and it is originally titled Cease to Exist, but it was reworked and titled as Never Learn Not to Love, which it was released December of that year, which I'm trying to look back. I think it was 1968. But the writing crediting is Dennis. Not Charles. So when Dennis was asked about why Charles wasn't credited with the song that he claims that Charles wrote... He says, why the fuck do you think? He says that Charles gave up his rights as a way to make up for about $100,000 worth of stuff. And probably the gonorrhea issues. Um... And apparently also Charles and his followers destroyed, like, a lot of Dennis's property and vehicles. Like, everything. They just fucking trashed that place. So, Dennis started to see that this erratic... stinky group. Yeah. So, I'm not surprised by that. Eventually, Dennis was like, mm, I'm done. Like, these roommates have got to go. I am going to just distance myself. Especially when Charles's drug use with hallucinogens started to increase. To keep himself separated, Dennis moved in with a friend named Greg Jacobson in Santa Monica. And Charles and his family essentially stole all of Dennis's belongings and then were shortly evicted from the home. Charles then tried to contact Dennis, but eventually decided to leave a bullet with Dennis's housekeeper as a threatening message. A man by the name of Van Dyke Parks, who was a collaborator of the Beach Boys, denied the fact that Dennis was ever afraid of Charles since... That was the ongoing rumor, and still is. Basically, he recounts an event of where Charles had actually shown Dennis the bullet and not just left it for his housekeeper. And in that circumstance, Dennis was confused and asked Charles what the bullet was all about, and Charles is like, it's a bullet. (laughs) Every time you look at it, I want you to think how nice it is your kids are still safe. Well, if that's not a threat, I don't know what is. I know. And apparently, Dennis, according to... Van Dyke, Dyke Parks. I was going to say Van DeWinkle. Um, according to Van, Dennis then beat up Charles after that comment. So, that's one story. Hmm. But according to other people, that is not the case. Such as Beach Boys manager Nick Grillo, or is it Grillo? 
I'm not sure. Dennis was afraid of Charles due to the ongoing drug use and, I don't know, the fact that he destroyed all of his shit. So much so, even bandmate Mike Love states that Dennis was afraid of Charles. So much so that in Nick's 2016 memoir called Good Vibrations, My Life as a Beach Boy, he recalls an event where Dennis told him that he witnessed Charles shooting... I'm so sorry. Ugh, shooting a black man in half with an M16 as well as hiding a body inside of a wall. If I saw that the shit, problems. I'd be pretty fucking scared too. Yep. But apparently, though Den- Dennis witnessed all of this, he didn't go to the police due to the fear of Charles and what he would do. So, at this point, it's all hearsay about what Dennis has or has not witnessed or if Dennis is or was not afraid. Anyways, onward. On... August of 1968, after being kicked out of Dennis's home, Charles and his family went to Spawn Ranch. This was a former TV set for Old West movies, and it was located in the San Fernando Valley. Though I did the math, my timeline is off. Hmm. Somewhere I think my sources are wrong. But originally, when I said Dennis met Patricia and Ella on the side of the road, it was in April of 1968. So if Charles and his family stay with Dennis for six months, they wouldn't have moved to the ranch until September or October, not in August. However, I just want to throw that out there just in case somebody calls me out on it. Or maybe they moved in before they were fully moved out. I don't know. Okay. I couldn't really find the information, but I just want to throw that out there. Cool. Fun fact, Charles probably found this place because he crashed one of Dennis's expensive vehicles into the side of the barn. Good lord. Yeah. Apparently, he also liked this location to settle down because, A, it's abandoned, B, hard to find, and three, it is large enough to support his family. So, while here, Charles had complete control over the cult. They were, like, completely fucking mind-washed. Mind-washed? Fuck. Brainwashed. (laughs) Mind-washed. There were rules, such as no one could wear eyeglasses or carry money. So he's already controlling people by the fact that they can't can't see see shit. You can't leave and spend money. One member named Diane Lake was only 14 when she met Charles. So very, very young and impressionable. She recalls nights at the ranch where Charles would hold long lectures and instruct everyone to take LSD and then listen to him preach about humanity. Hmm. Also, the women were the ones who did chores when ordered by Charles, and they would be forced to have sex with the almost blind 80-year-old owner of the ranch, George Spahn. So... They also acted as seeing eye dogs for this blind man, and um, it it, it, got, it was so fucking weird that one of the girls named Lynette Fromm got the nickname of Squeaky because when George would pinch her thigh, she would squeak. No fucking shit. I also would fuck... I would squeal if an old man touched me that way. No. No, no, no. But Charles did not give up on his dreams of music. Of course not, He's, even though he was terrible. He still had a dream. He's so, bad. He invited Terry, who was the producer of, I abbreviated Beach Boys as BB, and in my mind, I think Big Brother. This is a bad way to abbreviate Beach Boys. So he invited Terry, the producer of the Beach Boys, who we had talked about, to the ranch to come listen to his and the other members of the family perform. Terry goes and listens to their stellar performances, but it went nowhere. He kind of was just like, okay, cool, thanks, bye. A lot of people believe that since Charles was given all this false hope from these connections he had in the biz, he started to then resort to violence when he realized they truly had no interest. Yeah, bro. It was the drugs. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's what it was. Yeah. Um, but somehow, Charles had a lot of Hollywood connections and not just with Beach Boys. So the actress, Angela Lansbury, her daughter named Deidre Angela Shaw, she wasn't an official member, but she would often supply food and clothing for the family using her mother's credit cards. Remember how I told you that originally Charles stated that the first crimes would be black people committing crimes against white people? Mm -hmm. Still as fucked up as that is, he's going to make it worse. According to the Smithsonian, Charles then shifted his focus to more violent things, like we said, but more specifically, they had to begin helter-skelter by committing savage crimes on upscale neighborhoods, like these Hollywood friends that he has, to show black people just how violence should be carried out. And I hate that I have to say that, but I have to say that. But also, according to History.com, Charles wanted to instigate the race war by killing rich white people and making it look like black people did it. So that's fucking awful. And I hate it. FYI, I hate it. In the beginning of November, November, (laughs) in the beginning of November 1968, Charles set up some other locations as alternative headquarters in the Death Valley area. They found two unused or rarely used ranches called Myers and Barker. The Myers Ranch was owned by the grandmother of one of the Manson girls, Catherine Gillies. The Barker one was owned by an elderly woman named Arlene Barker. Charles was able to convince her to let him use the small ranch because him and another male member of the cult were musicians and needed a place to work. She agreed as long as they cleaned things up. Because that's what they would do. Yeah. No. Apparently, Charles gave her a golden Beach Boys record that he had been given several of by Dennis. I wish I had a golden Beach Boys record. Anyways... So remember all the Beatles hoopla that Charles is feeding his family? Apparently, he told them all about the White Album and Helter Skelter claims over a campfire at the Myers Ranch on New Year's Eve in 1968. So now we're in early January of 1969. The desert was too cold. The family had to retreat to a yellow house in Canoga Park, which was near Spawn Ranch. Charles, not surprisingly, called this the Yellow Submarine. Hmm... Clever. Very clever. So, by February, everything that Charles had hoped to achieve was done. The family was going to create songs that were subtle, like the Beatles songs about the world ending, and that would cause chaos and the end of the world. Um, Charles believed that the race war would start and it would split racists and non-racists apart until the white people were all gone. And then with black people winning the war, they would then be ruled by the family. (laughs) Okay. Which is fucked up, man. It's... I I have no no words. Right. I don't know. So the family were getting cars ready to leave for the desert and escape to the bottomless pit or those secret tunnels or whatever the fuck they were thinking they were going to. They were told by Charles that Terry was coming to listen to the album so they could prepare for him as well, but he never showed up. So I'm not sure why he's still trying. That's the end of what I've got for the cult so far. Okay, so... It's a hard transition because we don't really talk about, like, how he went from just being a cult to, like, killing people. And we haven't really talked a lot about, like, the members of the cult beyond Charlie Manson. So I'm going to mention people um, that are involved in this and they're going to be brand new people that you haven't really heard of. So Patricia won't be one. That's the only one. There were just so many people, how are we supposed to talk about them all? So, Tex Watson pretty much was the ringleader below 
uh, Charlie when it comes to these murders. So Tex Watson took Susan Adkins, Linda Kasabian, and we're going to call her Patty, Patty Krinwinkle, to quote, that house where Melcher used to live, as Manson told uh, Tex to do. So the thing is with this, it it's like even more upsetting because... Charlie Manson went to Melcher's house previously, and he had been there before, but he went there again looking for Terry Melcher, and the owner of the property was there. He was like, yeah, Terry doesn't really live here anymore. Um, It's this new guy, Roman Polanski, and his girlfriend wife. So Manson knew this, and he chose to do this anyway. So he tells Tex Watson to take these three women to the house and told him to, quote, Totally destroy everyone in it and do it, quote, as gruesome as you can. Which is fucked up because it's random. Yeah. It was literally just a house that he knew of because he'd been there before. So, Cranwinkle was one of the early family members that had met Dennis Wilson, like we said. And that's kind of how they got to know Terry Melcher, who again was the son of Doris Day. And a well-known record producer who worked with the Beach Boys, the Birds, Paul Revere, the Raiders, the Mamas and the Papas. Like... Very well-known producer, and that's why Charlie wanted to get in with him, because he wanted his music produced, and he was probably just pissed that he didn't get his music produced, so he went to this house anyways, even though Terry didn't even live there. Yeah, especially since he was like, here's my album for the end of the world, and you're not even going to come listen to it. (laughs) I'm going to fuck up the people who moved in after you. Yep. That makes sense. Um, so the occupants of the house at 10050 Cielo Drive that evening were movie actress Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, and the wife of film director Roman Plansky. Uh, if you don't know who he is, he directed um, Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. And several others, but that's like one of his big ones. Her friend was there. His name was Jay Sebring, and he was a pretty notable hairstylist. And then... Uh, Roman's friend and aspiring screenwriter, I'm gonna fuck up this name, Wojciech Frykowski. We're just gonna call him Frykowski at this point. And then his girlfriend, who was Abigail Folger, who was the heiress to the Folger's coffee fortune. Oh my god, I was gonna say! Yep, that's the one. So, Roman Plansky, at the time, was in Europe, and he was working on a project. Um, music producer Quincy Jones was a friend of Sebring, and he had actually planned to join them that evening, but ended up not going, thank oh, goodness. Yeah. Um, and then Sebring also invited Steve McQueen uh, to the party at Tate's house, but he said that he invited his girlfriend to go. She was like, nah, I'm not really into it. I want to have a night in, so they just stayed at their house. Again, thank goodness. How lucky. Yeah. Um, this specific house was chosen because both Tex Watson and Charlie Manson had been there at least one other, like, on at least one other occasion, and they were familiar with the layout. So they wanted it to go smoothly, and that's right. basically why they chose it. The group arrived at Cielo Drive a little bit past midnight on August 9th of 1969, and Tex climbed a telephone pole near the entrance to cut the phone line to the house. And then they backed their car to the bottom of the hill that led to the property and then walked back up to the house. As they were on their way up, they saw headlights approaching the house and Tex stepped out um, as they got closer and he like stood in the middle of the driveway, which signaled to the car like, hey, stop. So the car stops and um, he, he like gets the driver to get out. And the driver was this guy named Stephen Parent. 
Um, he had been visiting the property's caretaker, William Gerritsen, who lived in the guest house. Watson pulls out a twenty-two revolver and points it at this driver. It's this young kid at this driver. And Stephen Parent is like, oh my god, please, like, don't hurt me. I will leave. I'll get back in my car. I will, you know, bounce. <laughs> Bye. He's like, I'm not going to say anything to anyone. I'm just going to go home and pretend this never happened. And Watson obviously didn't believe him. Lunges at him with a knife that he also had, which gave him, like, a defensive wound on the palm of his hand. Severed a bunch of tendons. Like, oh, it was no. not even just, like, a little scrape. It was, like, f- fucked up. Um, and it tore his watch off of his wrist. And then, as if that wasn't enough, he ended up shooting him four times in the chest and the abdomen, which killed him. So that was the first victim. And he was totally innocent. Like, he was, just happened to become visiting somebody on the property. So, uh, Tex ordered the women to help push the car further up the driveway. They do that. And then he cut the screen out of one of the windows in the house, removed it entered through the window, and let Adkins and Krenwinkel through the front door. He whispered to Adkins, and that woke up Frakowski, who was sleeping on the living room couch. Watson then kicked him straight in the head, and Frakowski was like, what the fuck? Who are you? And what are you doing here? And Watson said, quote, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. Nice. Um, Adkins found the house's other three op- occupants, like, while this was all ha- happening, um, with Krenwinkel's help, and forced them to go into the living room. And then Watson started tying Tate and Sebring together by their necks with rope which he brought with him. Ugh. And then he slung it over one of the living room ceiling beams. J.C. Ring stated how pissed he was that the murderers were treating Sharon this way, because he's like, fuck you guys, she's super pregnant, what the fuck? Yeah. So, Watson didn't appreciate his back talk, so he shot him. Oh, God. Folger was taken momentarily back to her bedroom for her purse. I don't get why they did this. And she gave the murderers 70 bucks, and then Watson decided to stab J.C. Ring seven, seven times. This is after he already shot him. Frakowski's hands have been bound with a towel, which is weird. They had rope, but whatever. He freed himself, obviously. It's not that hard. And started kind of fighting with Susan Atkins, who stabbed at his legs with a knife. And then he fought his way out the front door and onto the porch. But then Tex caught up with him, hit him over the head with the gun multiple times, and then stabbed him a bunch and then shot him twice. Oh my god. (laughs) Where are they getting all these bullets? I don't know. So then Linda Kasabian was still outside at the time, but she heard all the commotion inside and she moved towards the house from her, she was still like in the driveway, basically keeping watch, but she's like, oh shit, it sounds like they need help. So she kind of moves inside and she tells Atkins that someone was coming in an attempt to stop the murders. I don't know if this is true or if this is something she just said at trial. Mm -hmm. Who knows? So she gets inside, and Folger escapes from Krenwinkle and flees out a bedroom door to the pool area outside. Krenwinkle followed her, caught her on the front lawn, where she stabbed her and tackled her to the ground, and then Tex Watson helped uh, finish her off. All together, she was stabbed a total of 28 times. Jesus Christ. Frakowski struggled across the lawn, uh, but Watson murdered him with a final flurry of stabbing. Uh, He was... Guess how many stab wounds he had. Don't 35. say something ridiculous. Okay, 51. 
Oh my god, that's what I I was gonna say like in the sixties, but you said don't say something ridiculous. <laughs> it's not that ridiculous, is it? Fifty one stab wounds and it had also been struck. Fifty one isn't that ridiculous? Well, compared to I mean, your sixty wasn't that con- ridiculous compared to my fifty one. Oh, yeah. He had also been struck thirteen times in the head with the butt of Watson's gun, which Ugh. bent the barrel and broke off one side of the grip. He hit him that hard. What the fuck? Yeah. So then in the house, Sharon Tate pleaded. She was like, please just, like, take me hostage. Let me live long enough to give birth to this baby. It's only going to be, like, a couple weeks max. Mm-hmm. Um, And then do whatever you want. But I really want my baby to live. And that didn't work. So both Adkins and Watson stabbed her 16 times, killing her and her unborn baby. After everything was said and done, Manson had told the women to, quote, Leave a sign, something witchy. So Adkins wrote, quote, pig on the front door in Sharon Tate's blood. Doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, but whatever. So then, Manson takes the four murderers plus Leslie Van Hooten and Steve Grogan, who were other members of the family, for a drive the next night. So all these murders had happened. They had not been arrested at this point, And he takes them on a drive. There's six of them plus Manson on a drive the following night. He was pissed about how sloppily these murders went. Especially because they planned it. You know, because they knew the property. Yada, yada, yada. But it mm-hmm. went so shitty. And Manson was pissed about it. So he takes those six followers out to, quote, show them how to do it. And he considered a number of murders during the next few hours, right? Attempted one, and then told Linda Kasabian to drive to 3301 Waverly Drive. This was the home of a supermarket executive na- uh, named Leno and his wife, Rosemary LaBianca. They were, she owned like a dress shop. He was the exec of the su- supermarket. And it was located in the Los Feliz section of Los Angeles next door to a house where Manson and other family members had went. They'd gone to a party. Mm -hmm. So they went to a party at this house. They saw this other house next door and they were like, let's go there. So according to Adkins and Kasabian, Manson like disappeared up the driveway. And then he came back and said that he tied up everybody in the house. Um, And then he sent... Tex Watson up with Krenwinkel and Van Hooten. Watson states in his autobiography, which I cannot believe he wrote one, that Manson went up by himself and returned to take him up to the house with him. Uh, Manson pointed out a sleeping man through the window, and the two of them entered through the unlocked back door. And then Watson added at trial that he just went along with whatever the women said because it made him look that much less responsible. Like it mattered because of what he did the previous night, but literally, whatever. So, the way the Watson said it happened, Manson woke up Leno LaBianca, who was sleeping on the couch at gunpoint, and then he had Watson bind up his hands with a leather strip that they brought. Rosemary then was brought into the living room from the bedroom where she was sleeping, and Watson followed. Manson's instructions to cover the couple's heads with pillowcases, which he then bound in place with lamp cords from lamps that were, like, in that room. Okay. Manson left and sent Krenwinkle and Van Hooten into the house with instructions that the couple should be killed. Yeah, he's such a fucking pussy. I'm not kidding. I fucking hate this guy after all this. 
Not surprised. I really do. Um, so then Watson complained to Manson earlier of like how poorly the night went prior because of the weapons that they had or didn't have. He had a fucking gun. Don't get me started. I was like, you spent so much time stabbing somebody like 51 yeah, 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 yeah. times. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So he sent the women from the kitchen to the bedroom where Rosemary LaBianca had been returned um, so they brought her back in there. I don't know why they would do that. And he went into the living room and began stabbing Leno with a chrome-plated bayonet. Oh, so this is the upgrade of weapons that it they is. have? Yes. I don't know if they brought these, if they were in the, if there were some collectible they saw in the house. I'm not sure. My research did not clarify on that. Okay. The first thrust went into his throat. Oh, my God. And Watson heard a scuffle happening in the bedroom, so he stabs him in the throat, and then he hears something going on in the bedroom. Goes in there to find Rosemary was keeping the women at bay by swinging the lamp that was tied to her neck. So she's swinging it around. What? Like a hula hoop? I guess. Or, I, I'm not, I wasn't there. <laughs> oh, is it like the guy from Taking Back Sunday in the music video from I can't Make Damn answer sure? any of this. For future, or not future, for previous (laughs) emos, if you've seen that music video for Make Damn Sure by Taking Back Sunday, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I will show you it after this. Okay. So, Tex goes in, he sees this commotion going on, and he just walks up to her and stabs her a bunch with the bayonet, goes back into the living room, continues attacking Leno, who he ended up stabbing with this bayonet a total of 12 times, and then he carved the word war into his abdomen. After that, he goes back to the bedroom and finds Krenwinkle stabbing Rosemary LaBianca with a knife from the kitchen. So she had been stabbed already by Tex, but Krenwinkle just is still going. So he tells Van Hooten to join in. So everybody's stabbing her. I don't know how many times she got stabbed. A lot. I do. I know how many were post-mortem. I don't know how many it took to kill her. Um, So everybody keeps stabbing her. Approximately 16 times in the back, and then her, she had, like, her pants were down, so her, they stabbed (gasps) her in the butt. Oh. Come on. And after that, Van Houten claimed that at trial, that Rosemary LaBianca was dead when she stabbed her. So she was like, well, I helped. But I only stabbed her after she was already dead. And evidence showed that many of the 41 stab wounds had in fact been inflicted post-mortem. So is that better? I don't know. I don't think so. Tex Watson then cleaned off the bayonet, showered at the house, and then while he was doing that, Krenwinkle wrote, quote, rise and quote death to pigs on the walls and i'm going to say this the way that it was spelled helter skelter <laughs> h-e-a-l-t-e-r-s-k-e-l-t-e-r you can't even spell helter skelter <laughs> on the refrigerator door all in Labianca's blood uh, she gave leno Labianca 14 puncture wounds with an ivory handled two tinned or two tined carving fork that she must have grabbed from the kitchen, yeah. um, which she left in his stomach, oh. and then also planted a steak knife in his throat. He was long dead at this point. Um, Manson so ended up leaving the others there, drove back to Spawn Ranch, so the LaBianca killers had to hitchhike their way home. That's why he showered. He was so covered in blood. Yeah. 
they had initially planned on one more murder in some actor's home, but after they got there, they bailed. And they just went back to Spawn Ranch. Oh, I bet you that person's lucky as fuck. Yeah. So, just before Sammy starts on her little end piece, the house, the Tate house, was torn down. And in 1999, a guy named David Omen and his father purchased a nearby plot of land that and built a house on it just 150 feet from where 10050 Cielo Drive was, which is where the, those murders took place. Um, and that was finished in 2002. So it took three years to build this house. Damn. Since moving in, it's called the Omen House. And if you look that up, it's O-M-A-N. Uh, it's notoriously been known to be full of all kinds of ghosty stuff. Oh, man. Oh, man. People Maybe. come from far and wide just to drive up the street of, you know, where the, the house is. And then the Omen House has been the subject of various network TV shows such as Ghost Adventures, Paranormal Witness, Ghost Hunters, My Ghost Story, and more. We can watch all of those. I would love to do that. Yeah. And then the podcast I recommend listening to, stand by, Standing. is called Holly Weird, Holly Weird Paranormal. Um, and one of the, like I said, one of the hosts is friends with David, so they do a lot of episodes there, and it's very, it's much more in-depth and much more personal than a lot of the resources I found online. Countless sightings of apparitions, disembodied voices, doors closing on their own, objects falling, light anomalies, and shadows can be seen at the house. Numerous recordings of EVPs and objects moving, uh, continue to add up, and David swears that he has this, like, personal relationship with Sharon Tate. Yeah, I think I finally remember that from the yeah. Ghost Adventures episode that I've seen. Yeah, I mean, I, what, he's been there almost ten years? And mm-hmm. it's been haunted literally since he built it. So, he claims to have this relationship, and if you want, you can go do a ghost hunt there. He lets people... No way. Yeah. Can we do it? Yeah. <gasps> Oh, yeah, totally. He hosts his own ghost hunts there. You can stay overnight. You can do all kinds of... I don't know what COVID has changed with that, but... We're doing it. Yeah, he pretty much... That's his source of income now is profiting off the ghosts in his house, so... Oh, my God, I would do that. Those are the Tate LaBianca murders. Perfect. Let me tell you about a little bit after the murders. Cool. Do you remember Dennis? Yeah. From the Beach Boys? I do. Well, does he feel at all responsible? I don't know. Because I feel like he maybe should. Um, Just like a little bit. I don't know. But apparently after the Tate LaBianca murders, Charles went back to Dennis's home. And apparently Charles told Dennis that he had just, quote, been to the moon, end Literally. quote. Yeah. And this is like, oh God, what does this mean? Yeah. And then he <laughs> just demanded for some money. And okay. Dennis gave him money. Oh. Well, he had a lot to give. (laughs) I know, right. So then that November, Charles was then caught. That was two months after. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. So he was caught, and then Dennis refused to testify against Charles, claiming that he was too scared. You can afford whatever security you want, bro. Yeah, apparently. So then Dennis was privately interviewed by a prosecutor named Vincent Boglowski. No, it was decided not to be necessary for the trial because Greg Jacobson, the guy that Dennis moved in with at Santa Monica, 
um, agreed to publicly testify to what Dennis claimed had happened. And I didn't know that you could testify, like, under oath, like, third-party information. I don't know. Seems kind of sketch to me, but whatever. Then Terry, remember Terry, he had mentioned that Dennis had actually not taken stand because prosecutors thought that he was a bit off his rocker. Sure. And apparently... He was having a difficult time with separating reality from fantasy, possibly because a lot of the sources that I looked into said that he was, he related Drugs. a lot to Charles because of his drug use <laughs> and stuff like that. So that's probably why he liked to party hard with him because they liked LSD. Anyways, so the prosecutor, Vincent, had also attempted to get those musical tapes from Dennis, but... Dennis claimed to have destroyed them because, quote, the vibrations connected with them didn't belong on this earth, end quote. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Dennis then alleges that he got death threats from the Manson family for several years, even after the trial. Dennis wrote in his 1978 biography, The Beach Boys and the California Myth, where he acknowledges his relationship with Charles and essentially states that he knows why Charles did what he did, like the murders and everything like that. And maybe he'll write a book and tell the world, but Eek. not this book. Okay. It is I also, bet he never did that. N- I have no, I have no idea. I don't it's even know if he's dead. still alive. Probably dead. Probably. It is noted by another biographer named um, Mark Dillon that, quote, some attributes of Dennis's subsequent spiral of self-destructive behavior, particularly his drug intake, intake to these fears of guilt for ever having introduced this evil wizard into the Hollywood scene, end quote. Fair. So his interpretation is that Dennis feels guilty because if he hadn't have gotten him into this Hollywood world, maybe those famous people such as Sharon Tate and the La Bianca... Oh my gosh. The La Biancas. Yeah, would still be alive. Yeah, but would somebody else be dead? Right. That's the thing. I don't it's know. Like, it's like... hard to say that kind of stuff. Other people would come forward about how Dennis feels guilt and implies that anyone else that is anybody, such as famous people that have ever been contacted by Charles or connected to them in any way, before the murders will essentially never talk about it. Probably out of embarrassment, out of shame, whatever. They're like, at the time, they were probably like, oh, cool, there's this weird hippie dude, whatever. But then he murders people and they're like, "Ah!" Oh no. Nope, Um, I don't remember him. Right. So, um, in 1975, a very, very loyal follower who we talked about before, Lynette Fromm, who is called Squeaky because of, you know, her getting squeakified, attempted to assassinate President Gerald Ford, but her gun jammed and she was taken into custody by the Secret Service. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of anticlimactic, and I bet you Ford is very grateful that her gun jammed. Yeah, totally. So then, after incarceration, let's talk a little bit about the cult members. One ex-family member named Dennis Rice, who at the time was in prison, I'm assuming for whatever he had criminally relating to the cult, reflected on his time with the family and his now-converted mindset in Christianity, stating, quote, My Jesus was in prison. Their Jesus was changing li- their lives. End quote. It is noted that Dennis Rice also was the head of a ministry that served prisoners, and sadly, Dennis died in 2013. Okay. Or maybe not sadly. I don't know. I don't know his hand in anything that was done. When Catherine, who goes by Gispy, it's not typo gypsy, I promise. Okay. She got out of prison. She became a victim's advocate for those affected by cults, oh, which I think cool. is pretty cool. Um 
I'm assuming she was also incarcerated for whatever illegal activity she had involved in the cult. She also was so convinced that Charles was the second coming of Christ that she was one that helped convince the rest of the followers of the same. So. That's the thing. Yeah. They just believe it. It's crazy how, like, easily you can influence somebody. Yep. So then a man named Bruce Davis was most often considered one of the other right-hand men. was still in prison um, as of uh, an article by the Gospel Coalition website dated August 10th of 2019, so pretty recent. Bruce was now a preacher for his prison chapel, so I guess changing his life. And then the lead murder for the Manson family, Charles Tex Watson, who you talked about, founded Abounding Love Ministries in 1980, and he became an ordained minister in 1981. Much like Bruce, he's still incarcerated. He is quoted to have said... Today, my time is spent sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in prison and through the ministry website. I have been solidly committed to full-time ministry almost since my salvation in 1975. Through these prison walls, the Lord has made a way for his testimony to be shared with thousands of people worldwide. So it seems like he's turned over a new leaf after being a fucking fuck fuck and killing people in the most brutal ways possible. Then in 1974, Charles even made claims on his own that his religion was Scientology and said that he has, quote, never settled upon a religious formula for his beliefs and was presently seeking an answer to his question in the new mental health cult known as Scientology, end quote. Solid. Yeah, little fucker. Um, He died of a heart attack slash respiratory failure slash cardiac arrest. They're basically all the same thing. And complications from colon cancer in 2017 at the age of 83. He was one of the oldest people in death row, but once the death penalty got taken away, he had lifetime sentences. Sentences. Originally, Charles was taken to the hospital for gastrointestinal bleeding, but was deemed too weak for surgery and then died. Cool. Yeah, so I'm, gl- I'm glad the Fuck hospital was that. like, nah, yeah, we're not going to save this, this one. We feel morally conflicted Yeah, <laughs> having to f- help save this guy's life. Here's the question I have for you. Are you ready? Yeah. Why is Charles and the Manson family still so big to us? Um, do you know another cult besides, like, Jonestown that killed so many people? He's wheezing. Famous I'm people? So sorry. Um, no. That's why. Yeah. So as I was doing my research, a lot of, um psychologists and shit said that the reason why they stick with us the murders were fucking brutal Mm -hmm. which you talked about the victims could have been anyone yep they were done to celebrities people that we thought were like high society and because of that it fucked with the idea that not a single fucking person is safe at home and then it seemed to give the impression that even good girls quote, good girls are capable of committing such awful, heinous crimes. Oh, yeah. And that the free love movement wasn't so free. Yep. So everything Totes. just kind of stacked on top of each other. It just shattered people's thoughts and beliefs. Yeah. And then I'm going to end it with some media here. I'm sure we all know that you can find anything about Charles Manson on any fucking book, TV show, anything about true crime slash cult slash I can't even tell you. There was a 1974 best-selling novel called Helter Skelter, The True Story of the Manson Family Murders by Vincent Biglaus. Yeah, the the prosecutor that we talked about earlier. Um, He published it and was apparently the best-selling true crime book of all time, according to a Smithsonian article 
from July of 2019. Mm. And then Charles has done his own fucking interviews. He's, like, living... He lived in the limelight. He, like I said, talked to Diane Sawyer. He talked to all these famous, like, talk show hosts. And it's, like, now we're glamorizing him, but whatever. That's what we're doing, basically, on this podcast. So what do I have to say? But... Love it. That's all I have. What garbage. What utter trash. That's how they do it in Hollywood. Huh, Oliver. Exit stage left. You have some crooked-ass teeth, boy. Good lord. Isn't that crazy? What a wild story. Sorry, I got really down, like, the cult rabbit hole. You did. That's okay. It's important. Um, any other thoughts before we peace out? No. If you think you're in a cult... Call your dad. No, don't call your dad. Get help. According to, uh, My Favorite Murder. Oh. Call your dad. Sorry, I guess I've not listened to that podcast. <laughs> Which blows my mind to this day that she is never. She's so into true crime podcasts, and she's never listened. to I my haven't listened murder. to a true crime podcast in a hot minute. But you never listened to my favorite murder. Never. Weird. I told you I tried to, and I just couldn't no, do it. No, you said you didn't want to because you couldn't go all the way back to number one. Right, but then you and I listened to a few episodes, and I just I'm mm. unappealed. Hmm. Okay. Well, on that note, yeah, no, hit us up at who knew podcast 666 at com, or just on Instagram. You can find us at who knew podcast. We'll interact with you as much as we can there. But if you have direct messages or anything like that, it's better to just email us with any of those. Because um, of my social anxiety. Exactly. Uh, Sammy is concerned when she looks at your message and knows that you can see that she's looked at it but hasn't responded to it. So just email us if you have anything beyond that. Just, and then you It's can... not that I want to ignore you guys. It's just that this is something that it's like ran by two people and we have a podcast together that I would like to like discuss that with my co-host slash partner and like make sure I don't give wrong answers before I just sure. start. Yeah. So, and I feel bad if I read it and then I don't get back to you and then you're like, oh, are you ignoring me? It's like, no, I just, <laughs> I need time to figure it out. So just email us. And then <laughs> if you want to support us on Patreon, like she said, um, you can just look us up, Who Knew Podcast or Who Knew on there. And we have all kinds of cool stuff there and new stuff as well. So yeah, then our merch, you can just go to our Instagram and there's a link tree and you can find everything there. Yep. Super easy. And Soups. then this is the end of our Hollywood series. This is it. And maybe we'll do another series next time. If you guys like it, let us know. If you don't like it, don't oh. tell us. We won't do it again. Yeah. Or we will, because we can do whatever the fuck we want. It's our podcast. <laughs> and that's that. <laughs> that's it. Oliver's going to say goodbye. Ollie. He's busy licking his paws. Oh. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Everyone else is sleeping. Yep. Bye. Bye.